Welcome to the official podcast channel of SIREN, the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network based at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded during a virtual event and has been lightly edited for ease of listening. I'm now very pleased to welcome to the virtual spotlight, Dr. Crystal Sine and Dr. Monica Peak, who will be discussing recent, a recent systematic review funded by PCORI that they worked on related to measuring health equity in social care research. So welcome, Dr. Sine. Welcome, Dr. Peek. So great to be here with both of you today. I wonder if we could get started with both of you introducing yourself. So let's start with you, Dr. Sine. If you could just tell us who you are and a little bit about your background and yeah, your work. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Caroline and the Siren team. It's really great to be here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Peek. So I'm Crystal Sine. I am a professor of medicine at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. I'm also the chief administrative officer for health equity, diversity, and inclusion at UC San Diego Health. I'm a general internal medicine doctor and a health services health equity researcher. I also uh, am trained as an implementation scientist and a cardiovascular epidemiologist, and it's really great to be here. Most of my research focuses on um, the impact of social networks and social relationships on the health of adults with chronic illnesses and implementing interventions to um, enhance patient and family-centered care. Dr. Peek. I'm so excited to be here to talk about this work that Carolyn, you're a part of and that uh, Dr. Sine is a part of. And also just excited. I'm always delighted to be sharing the same space with Crystal. She, We call each other twins. <laughs> uh, we've worked together for so long and are just so similar in so many ways. I love Crystal. I am a professor of the Ellen H. Block Professor of Health Justice, which you know, I'm so excited to have that title. I'm not sure there's another professor of health justice in the country. I'm in the section of general internal medicine at the University of Chicago, and I wear, like Crystal, lots of different hats. I'm in the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. I'm one of the associate directors there and a director of research. I'm uh, one of the associate directors for our diabetes center, the uh, Chicago Center for Diabetes Translation Research. I'm the executive medical director for clinical health innovation, Lots of different things. Um, I'm our associate vice chair for faculty research development, which um, allows me to focus on uh, research faculty who are underrepresented in medicine um, and their trajectory for research. So that's a, a new exciting role for me. So my research, uh, research is like crystals in health equity, health disparities, and I fo have focused on uh, diabetes, not because I love the pancreas, although I, I'm glad mine is functioning, um, but because I think about diabetes as a social disease, um, one in which there are so many different levers that we can take advantage of to improve the health of marginalized populations, but ones in which are frequently not functioning well that, uh, that result in disparities. And so it's a great sort of model to think about what happens when everything goes to hell um, and we see lots of disparities that result. But I've also been leaning really heavily in the COVID pandemic. And so spent a lot of my sort of bioethics training thinking about, thinking about that and 
So anyway, I'm just excited to be here. A lot of my work also has been recently in integrating medical and social care, which is why I was really excited to be involved in this project and to work with Siren and, and everyone, RTI, Crystal, others closely on this project and to talk about it. Well, that's a great segue into this project. So could one of you start us off by telling us what did you set out to do with this review? Why did it happen and what was the goal? I'm happy to start. We all know that we've been talking a lot, uh, or the world has been, many of us have been talking about it for a longer period of time, but you know, after 2020 or so, the world has started to talk more about um, structural racism and it, it impacts on health. And really, uh, we actually, um, Monica, Caroline, and Laura, and I started this discussion many years ago, probably four or five years ago, certainly pre-pandemic, of this idea started to percolate um, and it evolved over time. But essentially, we landed on what we'll share today. But we know that because of the historical and ongoing nature of structural racism, social needs are more prevalent among minoritized racial and ethnic populations. And, you know, these groups uh, experience socioeconomic disadvantage differently for minoritized groups than white populations. And really, despite the many ways that we know that racism affects the effectiveness of social um, needs interventions, which also have gotten a lot of interest and examination over the past few years, no one had really uh, examined the extent to which the social needs interventions actually explicitly considered whether and how minoritization by race, ethnicity might impact the effectiveness of those interventions. So that's essentially what we sought out to do, and we leveraged the um, PCORI's uh, February 2022 scoping review, an evidence map of social needs interventions in healthcare settings to actually explore this broader idea that we were really trying to understand of how these interventions actually conceptualized and analyzed differential intervention effects by race and ethnicity. But I'll let Monica share kind of what our specific questions were, but that's kind of the global overview. Well, yeah, one thing I, I just want to add is that I've spent a lot of time, again, sort of thinking about all the different ways in which diabetes needs to work, you know, all the ways the stars need to align to be effective. And so some of that is, you know, patient self-management. Some of that is, you know, communication with the doctor. Some of that is quality improvement. You know, so I've done more quality improvement than I initially thought I was going to do when I first became a clinical investigator. And one of the things that has always been interesting to me is sort of thinking about the difference between general quality improvement and sort of socio socioculturally tailored quality improvement. And so as we're doing these interventions to address specific social needs, which really are a reflection of economic issues. You know, I don't have enough money to pay the rent, to purchase healthy food or to purchase food at all, to have, you know, access to clean water from based on where I live. They're all sort of economic issues. Are we also thinking about the larger sociocultural context in which people live, where they are faced by issues of immigration, racism, other things in their life that layer on top of and are frequently underlying drivers of these issues. And so some of the examples I, I frequently think about are um, people in this country that are undocumented and don't have access to WIC or SNAP. And so when we're thinking about their access to food, it's going to be completely different. Their access to healthcare 
completely different. And so when we're building out programs, do we take those into consideration? Um, the other thing that I think is really important is that we sometimes have separate conversations around racism and you know, social determinants of health when we know that racism is driving differentially these social determinants of health. And one of the things that we note in our paper are some specific examples of how that may play out. So um, for example, when we think about structural racism, the differential access to good services and opportunities and risk, that has resulted in, as one example, residential segregation where there's you know, lower quality housing, education, lots of concentrated poverty, all these things sort of in a physical neighborhood. So people who are living in those neighborhoods as we're trying to then assign social services and resources may have differential access to those resources if they're living in communities that, that have fewer resources. Or if we say, let's take interpersonal racism, as people are you know, having their vouchers or doing whatever, as they're navigating their way around the community trying to access these services, we know that you know, discrimination is everywhere. Um, and so that is gonna be an additional barrier for people as they're trying to receive these various goods and services that we're trying to give them um, as what they're receiving in healthcare. And then we also think about internalized racism. Black and brown people aren't the only ones who have these beliefs. Um, we also, uh, marginalized populations also inter internalize the same bad beliefs about ourselves to some degree. And so that manifests sometimes as hopelessness, as decreased self-confidence, and that can affect our ability to manage chronic diseases, to believe that we can overcome some of these barriers. And so it is really important as we think about how racism and all the different ways that it can manifest can impact the effectiveness of these interventions that are designed to address the economic, ultimately, um, shortcomings that a person may have. And so that interplay really hasn't been interrogated enough. And so uh, that is what we were really trying to do. So just to put a fine point on what Monica was saying, I think many of us know the ways that racism can Im impact health. But one of the things that we were really intentional about was that well, because there are no validated measures for structural racism, what we wanted to do is to draw the explicit link between race and racism in this. And we wanted to know how studies actually conceptual or did they actually specify and articulate that they knew that race was a proxy for structural racism and all the things that kind of stem from that. But we had four key questions, and I'm just going to go through these very quickly. It's important to note that we looked at multiracial studies um, in multiracial and multi-ethnic populations because we we're specifically interested in examining differential impacts by race and ethnicity. So among those set of studies from the PCORI review, again, we situated this within this broader um, Corey review, how many of those studies actually included race or ethnicity in their analysis? Um, and then we, you know, described what social needs interventions those studies were addressing. 
We wanted to know among the studies that did include race or ethnicity in their analysis, and by that we mean, did they look at it as a, you know, confounder variable? Did they stratify by it? Did they actually do something um, with the race or ethnicity? Among those studies that actually did include it in their analysis, how did they conceptualize it? So again, we were very um, intentional about thinking about the extent to which studies actually talked about race as a social construct, as a, a proxy for structural racism or some other form, because we know it's not a biological a construct. So we wanted to really see our, our researchers acknowledging that it's not a biological construct, that it's a social and, and specifying what what they think it serves as a proxy for. And then how many of those studies actually examined whether the intervention had differential impacts by race and ethnicity? The last question was around tailoring and the extent to which they tailored their interventions based on cultural context, which is what um, Monica was alluding to earlier. And I think one of the things that was unique about our studying, and we'll talk a little bit more about the results, but in doing this, really focusing on these two big areas, what was the theoretical, conceptual, conceptual, how did they conceptualize race and ethnicity, and how did they then use it in the analysis of so the methodological, we wanted to look at the intersection of those in a way. So we wanted to see which studies were sort of thoughtful in the way that they conceptualized race and ethnicity and were informative in terms of helping us to understand differential impacts, which we believe actually helps us to advance the field of racial um, equity research. So we have these two big constructs that you'll see um, throughout thoughtfulness, or which relates to the conceptualization and informativeness, which relates to how they used race or ethnicity in the analysis. Thank you. That is great. And will you remind us again, because I think people may not be familiar with this PCORI evidence map. Can you say a little bit more about what that is? So for those who aren't familiar, PCORI has developed, did, um, and is on an ongoing basis doing a review of the literature for interventions addressing social risks. And they all have put that literature review that they're updating on a regular basis, roughly every, I think, six months or a year, they have put it into a kind of a visual format. And that's the link that was dropped in the chat. And so that's basically the universe of studies that Crystal and Monica focused on in this, and the, you know, those of us that were involved with this focused on for this review. So it's basically studies on all sorts of different kinds of interventions, right? So some of them were housing quality interventions to reduce asthma. Some of them were um, community health worker interventions related to a whole, you know, social risks for patients with diabetes. I mean, it was a whole range of things, right? Yeah, I think there were 157 studies in the review that we did. And among those 157, we ended up with 152 that actually focused on the multiracial and multi-ethnic population, which was kind of our main inclusion criteria. Yeah. Can you say that again, Crystal? Like, why was it that the review focused on multi only on multiracial populations, just to make sure that's clear? Yeah, so um, so this was a, and we'll talk about hopefully later some challenges, but it was really important for us to be able to look at differential impacts by race and ethnicity. That was one of our key things that we were interested in. So in order to do that, you actually have to have studies that have multiracial um, and multi-ethnic populations so that we can compare and see if the effects were differential between the minoritized racial and ethnic groups that might have been in the study and 
and um, Hispanic, non-Hispanic white populations. But we acknowledge throughout this work as an internal team and also in the paper that we write that there is great value and we are big proponents of uh, single race or single ethnicity studies because, you know, we shouldn't, whites are not the standard, right, in this work. And, and a lot of times we kind of always, and, and reviewers push us to do this and funders often push us to, you know, think about comparing minoritized racial and ethnic groups to whites. Uh, we don't think that that's the only approach. In fact, there's great value in looking within single race ethnicity studies to be able to see who the positive deviants are, who are who are people who are doing well, despite the fact that people would expect the group not to do poorly. And we can um, learn a lot from those types of studies. And we certainly push and advocate for them. But that wasn't the um, focus for, for this particular review. So with all that said, what did the review find? So as Crystal said, we had 152 studies in our evidence map that had multiracial or multi-ethnic populations. And so that's a lot of studies. And I feel like we should do like a, a game show. Like how many do we think of those 152 it had race or ethnicity as a variable in their analysis of effectiveness as an outcome. And that was 44. Drum roll, right? I right. Drum roll. <laughs> I saw it on my screen. So I know. Yeah. So that was 29%. So uh, only 44 of those 152. So 29% had race or ethnicity. Only four of these 9% were method definition of what we consider conceptually thoughtful in understanding the root causes of health inequities. And so by that, it's what Crystal was talking about, that race is a social construct, not a biological one. And a lot of words we could say, but to condense it down, race is a proxy for social disadvantage. Only 12 of these 44, and you can see that I put a little placeholder that I forgot to calculate because I did it this morning while I was under the hair dryer, and I hope that you all appreciate that I did my hair for this show. So that's 27, 27%. So 27% of... Let me jump in here, Monica, for a second, because I feel like this is a lot of stuff, and let's break it down for people. So going back to the top line... The first thing that you found, if I'm understanding correctly, is that you had 100, we had 152 studies that, uh, of interventions addressing social risks in multi-racial, multi-ethnic study populations. Only about a third of them, less than a third of them, included race or ethnicity variables in their analyses, right? Is that what that first thing is? Okay. Yes. Okay. And then, oh yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, I think that just stopping on that point, because yeah. when you think of it, what a missed opportunity. And what does that say about how we think about this construct? It To me, and I think what the discussions that we had were that, you know, again, I think because it's easy, it's a checkbox, like we can easily gather race data or we have it, whether the quality of it is good is a whole nother conversation, but we think it's it's a simple variable. And I think it's easy for people to dismiss, but when you really unpack what it is and what it stands for, the fact that two thirds of studies would not do anything with that variable, would not seek to see how it's affecting the effectiveness of the intervention, would not, not even try to 
control for it, which again, there are lots of issues with, you know, what are you actually controlling or adjusting for, but they just did nothing with it. You see it, that it shows up, and then they do not a thing with it. So I think that says a lot about the state of the fields and the science and, and people's understanding probably of where, you know, what race and ethnicity really means. Thank you for, for helping to put that in context and explain it. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about like, why is it that folks might not be thinking to look for or, you know, think about putting race or ethnicity in the analyses of these kind of studies? You know, um, we actually mention a number of reasons in the paper. There's not enough space. We have sort of limited space. It's not really prioritized by the journals, although there's sort of a shift in that recently journals are starting to put sort of expectations and normative behaviors around how they're dealing with race and racism and author instructions about that. So I think that's going to start, and these are high quality journals. So I think that's going to start moving the field. But I think that there still is a lot of people who just don't understand, who um, are used to just sort of grinding the numbers, you know, age, age, gender, race, but don't really have a true understanding, you know, what a machine racism is that has just trampled, you know, brown and black communities. And I think that that is obvious to me when it, when really, I think we have two choices to explain disparities. Either black and brown people are inherently inferior or the system is doing something to black and brown people to give us worse health outcomes. I think those are our two choices. And <laughs> everybody should be mad as hell if we think it's the latter, but we don't see everybody mad as hell. And so I think that sort of subconsciously, a lot of people have kind of accepted that it's the former because it's kind of easier. We don't have to then do anything about it. We're all these behavioral things, you know, it's, uh, they show up late, there's, you know, uh, and so we don't want to take a, a cold, hard look at, you know, what we've inherited as a country, what our responsibility is as a community and as a people to right these wrongs. The weight is so heavy for us to lift. And so it's easier just to kind of ignore it. <laughs> You know, and, I think that, and that's the power of it too, Monica. I think that the power of, of structural racism is the fact that we've rendered it invisible, right? As long as we don't show the effects that it has historically and continues to have, then we think that it doesn't exist and we can go on about our way and, and, and look at, as you said, the individuals or their behaviors or, you know, the broad kind of that micro context around them, but not looking at the structures, policies, and the practices that perpetuate it. But I think that that's exactly it. And I think the other thing that was really interesting in thinking about that, you know, the fact that only, you know, four of the studies were really thoughtful in terms of how they conceptualize and how they explain that. But the other thing that we found was that um, even among those four, 
none of them actually provided the, the rationale for sort of how they saw race functioning in their work. None of them talked about that in the introduction or the methods. Those We really found evidence of that kind of in the discussion. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? But part of good science is that we have an idea or conceptualization that we carry through our work. And so we really wanted to see, are you thinking about this at the forefront? Is your introduction the story that you tell? Because we know that story is powerful in the introduction and the way we set up our studies and how we talk about the constructs and then that how we carry it through in the methods. The discussion really just flows from the intro and the methods, right? And then you get your results. But it's really the fact that that was kind of almost an afterthought, there might have been, and none of these stories, I mean, there were like one-liners here, guys. We're not talking about like a lot of time, you know, it was kind of one line or few words that, and we were liberal, like we tried to include everything that might have been some hint or some acknowledgement that they understood race as a social um, and political construct. But we didn't find that. And the fact that we didn't find it in the places where you would expect variables, you know, we're scientists, right? A lot of us. And, you know, if you're not defining your variables and the methods, that's, you know, that's not good science. So it's not just a lack of acknowledgement, but I really would say, and I think our team feels that this is bad science. If you're just putting down, we examine race and ethnicity, something that's clearly a social construct that serves as a proxy for lots of different things, and you're not unpacking that, I would say that, you know, that's not good science. And I'm not being judgmental because I've done that. We've all done that. But I think part of what we're trying to do um, in this plenary, and I think what Siren's trying to do is really challenge the status quo and get us to move to a, a higher heights and kind of deeper depths with the way we think about um, race and ethnicity. That's so well said, Crystal. So one person in the, in the Q&A is curious in particular about the tailoring. And if you could say a little bit more about where there was evidence of the tailoring, any examples that you particularly remember that you might hold up as like, you know, really good, strong tailoring, or if you didn't find any in the literature, like what would you, what do you think like the ideal should be for how you tailor social risk interventions for different populations who, particularly those who experience structural racism? So I, most of the studies, and unfortunately, I, for reasons that are unclear, I put structural racism right there in the middle. I, that's me getting my hair done, too many things. Um, so I typically relied on human capital as uh, cultural bridges, like community health workers or peer mentors. Um, that was the what most people did. And then they usually did one other thing. There was like a, a range of things that people could do. Most people had two things. Um, a community health worker and one other thing. So most people didn't have a whole sort of toolbox of strategies that they were employing. And so that, fortunately, this is, there's a lot of evidence base for these strategies and, and they can do a, a lot of you know heavy lifting, this one single strategy. But I think that we have to, you know, recognize that racism is pernicious. <laughs> <laughs> and that if we want to overcome the multiple barriers, we have to have a multifaceted strategy 
and relying so heavily on human capital and the community health workers and peer mentors who themselves are the objects of racism, and are frequently low-wage workers, are, you know, they, they themselves may be the recipients of SNAP and, uh, you know, faced with other sort of structural issues. We have to have a multifaceted program. And so that that's just, so there's a, a, a one study in particular that was very thoughtful about how they engaged with the community. Um, around, you know, housing, but still how, how they thought about the intervention. It was like they were doing surveys and wanted to make sure that you know, people didn't get evicted as a result of their intervention and really had a lot of community input. But the interventions themselves usually were not very comprehensive as far as having multiple ways in which they were trying to tailor them. And I think the other thing was that they you know, again, as Monica said, the CHWs and peer mentors, navigators were the most common. There were a few studies that used like that provided cultural sensitivity training or training on resources that were available to the community. Or I think there was one that looked at uh, culturally um, appropriate sort of food resources uh, in diverse populations. But again, as Monica said, they weren't they didn't address all the different ways that you can tailor. And we have, you know, good literature on all the different ways that you can tailor interventions, but we didn't find anything that was nearly sort of that complete that looked at kind of the various ways that you can tailor. And again, I think, you know, one of the challenges with this and with the tailoring is that there are so many, again, there's such a breadth of ways that you could Taylor. And a lot of times we were, again, as you can imagine in a systematic review, we're trying to think of the things that we could be the most definitive or sure about to count as tailoring. So if they're, because we're tailoring based on race and ethnicity, right? We're trying to think about that. That was kind of the focus. And there are other things that maybe sounded like it could be tailoring based on race and ethnicity, but it was really providing person-centered care. So we had a lot of discussion on where's the line between just providing care that's person-centered versus you're really tailoring it based on race and ethnicity. So that was one of the, the challenges with the tailoring piece of it. So I wonder, Crystal and Monica, if you have kind of final thoughts about like what we need to do better. I think there was a great way that this was phrased. How do we support training on this idea of transparency around race and ethnicity? How do we help set and meet the expectations of better science in this area? What would be kind of your quick takeaways, each of you in less than than 30 seconds? (laughs) So I think it has to do with leadership. So having programs like this, anyone who has ever asked to join an editorial board, to be an, a journal editor, to sit in a position of leadership, and you're like, ah, more work, um, do it, because that is where the decisions are made. Those are the gatekeepers. Um, we see some of the mistakes that Gemma made and some of the you know, corrections that they're trying to do. The, the devil's in the details, and you want to be in the room when it happens. Um, you can make those differences. Um, and so right now, Right now, everyone has been motivated since 2020, and we have to commit ourselves to the additional work of trying to move this field forward. And so that's what I'm trying to do while I'm raising my crazy kids, um, is, is do this extra stuff. 
that's what that's everyone's responsibility, but it's particularly everyone who's on this call's responsibility because we want to see uh, see the field be better. And so while the, the field is ready to be better, it's our responsibility to say, okay, well, um, this is what it means to talk about race and, and racism. These are the standards, you know, and thank you to those who've already published in that area. Um, let's get everyone on board with the ideas for this. This is what it's going to mean for X, Y, and Z. And so the more that we talk about it and write about it and have standards about it, the more we, you know, train our trainees about it, the more it's going to become, you know, the new norm. And that's where, that's where we need to go. So I, I know we don't have time, so I, I don't want to um, uh, shortchange Ryan at all. I'll just say part of this, uh, I'm thinking about the agreements, and uh, Caroline, you invited us to a brave space. I would say, let's take a brave stance when we think about this. Let's push ourselves to write these explanations and our methods, insist that our mentees write them, our co-authors write these explanations. Just, it can be one sentence, guys. It, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot, but let's really acknowledge, challenge each other to do this. Because again, it's sort of like we often talk about our budget. The budget is a moral document. I think the space that we provide in our papers, I know we have 3,500 words, it's not a lot, but if we can't use 20 of those words to really um, accurately say what race is a proxy for and avoid the perpetuation of scientific racism, I think that we would be doing the field and ourselves a, a service. Thanks for listening to this Siren podcast episode. Andrew Fankush does our editing and sound design. Nylon Thoe designed our cover art and Aurélie Jougla composed our music. Yuri Cartier, that's me, and Dylan Gonzalez produced this limited podcast series. Find out more by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.